There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted Philly. I'm Dina Marie, host of the Twisted Philly podcast. I recently realized it's been quite a while since I've told any Pennsylvania ghost stories. I think it's been since Haunted Hill, which was one of the first episodes I dropped. And there are so many ghost stories from all around Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. I think I've told you guys I believe in ghosts, or maybe more to the point, spirits. That sounds better. I do believe in the concept of a soul, and there's an essence that leaves your body when you pass on. Now, I'm not going to talk too much about what I think happens beyond that point, because I don't want this to turn into a discussion about religion. But yeah, I believe there's something ethereal going on inside our bodies, and that ether has to go somewhere once the shell is done. I believe a soul can get stuck. For whatever reason, it either doesn't realize it's time to move on, or it knows very well it's time to move on, and it says, fuck that, I'm not going anywhere. I don't believe in demons, and I'm not really sure I believe in malevolent spirits. I think it's more just the essence getting stuck here on our plane. Maybe it's not exactly sure what's going on, and it's stuck here either by chance, by choice, or by confusion. And I've had my own experiences with spirits. Yes, I have. No, this is not bullshit. It is absolutely true. My first experience was during my first visit to Narn. It was out on a paranormal investigation, and it was at a hotel that used to be an orphanage over a century ago or more. Now, this company also did overnight investigations where you could sleep in places that were thought to be haunted. I wasn't on the overnight trip, although I would love to do that. But it was pretty late at night when we were in this hotel. We were walking around a banquet room, and it was the sort of room that was used for wedding receptions, but it used to be a huge hall that was full of beds for children in the orphanage. And so I'm walking around this room, where there's ghosties, and out of nowhere I take a step, and the only way I can describe it is that my foot felt like the way you would feel when you were a kid and you stuck your tongue on a 9-volt battery. That weird sensation that you would feel in your tongue started in my foot and it traveled up my leg so fast and I totally freaked out and I started screaming like an idiot. The woman who believes in spirits, watches horror movies all the time, likes to visit haunted houses and haunted cities, freaked the fuck out when I felt this weird metallic tingling and I cried like a baby. One of the paranormal investigators rushed over to me. He wanted to know what happened. People around me were saying, I don't know. She just said she felt something weird. So, of course, this guy asks me where I felt it. And I pointed to a spot about three feet away because I sure as shit was not standing in the same spot within about a split second after I felt that sensation. So he asks me to stand there again. I'm sorry, what? You want me to what? This guy is begging me to stand back in the same spot. And he's got all these instruments. I don't know. They look like Geiger counters or something. And so I complied. I walked on my tiptoes. I crossed back to that spot and barely touched the carpet with my toe. It was like easing yourself into a cold pool. And I felt nothing, absolutely nothing. The weird sensation was gone. 
I calmed down. I felt like an asshole for freaking out. The investigator said he'd walk with me to make me feel more comfortable. And then about 10 feet away from that spot, I felt it again. And I started freaking out again. But this guy like grabbed my shoulder and said, don't move, don't move. And he's running the freaking Geiger counter up and down around me, testing the air. And I know it's not a Geiger counter, but I don't remember what the fuck it's called. But it's like the stuff that Sam and Dean use on Supernatural. I was trying to figure out why the spirit was following me around and why the hell did it feel like my entire body was a giant tongue licking a nine volt battery. And that was it. Gradually, as I moved around the room, the sensation subsided. I don't know what it was. I certainly didn't see a spirit, but I felt something. I believe it was the spirit of someone who lived in that orphanage. And for whatever reason, he or she wanted to make their presence known. My next experience with a spirit was with my ex-husband, although we were dating at the time, and I don't remember if we were engaged yet or not. We, we could have been. He grew up in a 200-year-old house in a part of the Philly suburbs called Militia Hill. The house sat on a hill, and it sat actually at a four-point crossroad, which, speaking of supernatural, hello, crossroads demon. One night in the fall, we were standing on his parents' driveway, which ran behind the house. It was a gravel driveway. It wasn't paved. And there was a second area where you could pull a car in further up the hill, but still on their property. And it was densely wooded. So his dad, a long time before this, put up a telephone pole. I mean, it didn't have wires on it, but it was this giant pole in their backyard with a motion detector floodlight. And when something moved, that yard lit up with the power of a dozen blazing suns. When that light would come on, it felt like it burns, it burns. It was so bright. So we were standing next to his car and that giant floodlight kicked on. We were standing there talking about something. Who knows what? It was over 20 years ago at this point. And we heard shoes crunching on the driveway. So I turned down and looked down the driveway thinking someone's walking up from the street, which wouldn't have been completely unexpected because he had the kind of friends that would pop over any time, day or night. But there was no one there. So he moved further up the driveway thinking it was someone on the upper hill pulling in behind the trees. The sound wasn't coming from above us. It was coming from right in front of us. And then we saw a shadow. We saw a shadow move along the house on the other side of the car. And as it moved, you could hear gravel crunch under its feet. The outline of the shadow appeared to me to be a Civil War Union soldier. I was freaking out a little bit. I think I was saying, oh my God, repeatedly. And my ex said something like, well, sweetheart, there was so much military activity here from the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. It sort of makes sense. Like it was nothing. Like every day you see a shadow walk by with no body attached to it, like some Peter Pan shit. I wasn't scared. I was more shocked than anything and mesmerized. And all of this took place in a matter of seconds. As the shadow got further down the driveway, it faded, which it shouldn't have done because it was still within the scope of the spotlight. That, to me, was definitely an encounter with a spirit. It was auditory. We heard him walking on the gravel. And it was visual. We saw the shadow. And by God, I have a witness. Granted, it was a witness who wasn't anywhere near as impressed as I was. For him, it was almost like simply part of nature. But for me, it was like, that's a fucking ghost. I'm going to save my third experience for a little later in the episode because I want to get to some other ghost stories from this haunted state. I'm not going to be talking about Gettysburg today. And you know what? I just realized 
I do that. Like, that's kind of a thing with me. I mention a place or a story or a person and I say, I'm not going to tell you about that today. Does that bug you? Because it kind of bugs the shit out of me now that I realized I do it. Um, So I could totally get it if it did bug you. The reason I do that is because there are obvious connections with story topics. If you talk about haunted towns or ghost stories from Pennsylvania, most people immediately think of Gettysburg, which is probably the most haunted place in the state, and it's certainly one of the most haunted places in the country. We had the bloodiest battle of the Civil War in Gettysburg. And yeah, I'm going to talk about Gettysburg at some point, but not today. I don't like to start with the obvious or the most well-known. I like to tell you about something that's a bit more hidden and off the beaten path. And then we circle around a few months later to the bigger story. It's like starting off my very first episode with Marty Graham and then waiting six months to talk about Gary Heidnick. Our first tale today is a mix of legend, ghost story, and witchcraft. Now, the first documented witch trial in Pennsylvania happened almost a decade before the hysteria of the Salem witch trials. And Twisters, I have to tell you, I am an obsessive historian of Salem, Massachusetts, and the witch trials of 1692. But as this is Twisted Philly and not Twisted Salem, I'm not going to tell you that story. And there I go again talking about what I'm not going to tell you. I could do an entire podcast dedicated to the Salem witch trials, the culture, the geography of Massachusetts at the time. Huh. Maybe I should do another show. Yeah, like I have the fucking time for that. Okay, Pennsylvania, 1684, our very first witch trial. And just where did this witch live? In Delaware County. She was a Delco girl. Ladies, give me a high five on that one. Swedish settlers Margaret and Niels Mason lived near Ridley Creek. Margaret was a healer. She used traditional methods of herbal healing she learned in her native country. Well, the British settlers living in what used to be Delco took issue with Margaret and accused her of practicing witchcraft. They even said she hexed their livestock. Margaret Mason's trial was presided over by none other than William Penn, as if he had time to preside over a witch trial when he was trying to map out the future city of Philadelphia. But out to the sticks he came nonetheless. He asked Margaret if she was a witch, to which she replied no. He asked her if she'd ever ridden around on a broomstick, and considering she spoke next to no English, she probably had no clue what the fuck he asked her, and she wasn't able to answer the question. William Penn decided, since Pennsylvania had no laws against witchcraft, Margaret couldn't be charged with actually being a witch. So she was charged with behaving in a manner that made people accuse her of witchcraft. She was basically charged with other people being dicks. She was fined with the caveat that if she behaved in a respectable manner, her fine would be refunded. Penn was true to his Quaker roots, true to the ideals of brotherly love and sisterly affection. And it's a damn shame we didn't have the Quakers living up in Salem, Massachusetts, instead of the fucking Puritans. Fast forward about 250 years later, and it would seem the residents of Pennsylvania are still very much against the idea of witchcraft and what they perceive as sorcery. 
This tale of witchcraft happened in 1928 in a sleepy little area called Ray Myers Hollow out in York County, pretty far south in Pennsylvania near the Maryland border. Ray Myers Hollow was also called Hex Hollow. That part of town was named for the family that lived there, the Ray Myers. Now, Nelson Ray Meyer lived in a small wooden house in the woods, which actually still stands today. And no, I haven't visited that house. I'm scared to visit that house. Nelson Ray Meyer was a Pennsylvania Dutch powwow doctor. Now, there's a phrase you may not hear every day. Powwow doctor is really just another term for medicine man, and it's actually a Native American term for a gathering of medicine men, but the phrase was adopted by early Pennsylvania Dutch settlers. The Pennsylvania Dutch actually had plenty of medicine men of their own. In the early 1800s, a German settler named John George Homan published a book called Long Lost Friend, and it was filled with folk remedies. But it also contained what was believed to be spells, which is interesting considering the subtitle of this book translates to True and Christian Instructions for Everyone, comprising wonderful and well-tested remedies and arts for men as well as livestock. Not a word of witchcraft anywhere in that title. But people were superstitious and walk around carrying a weird book, collecting herbs and berries in the forest, and you're quite possibly going to get your ass kicked. Pennsylvania Dutch traditions are still very much alive and well today. There's even some practicing powwow doctors out in rural Pennsylvania. And the same can be said, much more so, about Pennsylvania in the 20s. Nelson Raymeyer was a descendant of the Raymeyer family who moved to Pennsylvania from Germany in the 1840s. He was born in 1886, and he lived in a remote section of the hollow. Nelson married before he was 30, and of course he married an 18-year-old because that's how they did it back then. Ray Meyer and his wife Alice had two daughters, and many of their descendants, cousins, descendants of extended family still live in Ray Meyer Hollow today. In fact, Nelson Ray Meyer's great-grandson, Ricky Eba, owns the house that he once lived in. Nelson Raymeyer was called a hermit and a recluse, but according to family, that wasn't really the right description for him. He certainly was quiet and preferred to keep to himself. Eventually, he and his wife split up, although she just moved to a farmhouse up the hill, so they weren't really that far from one another. Nelson could be neighborly when the need arose, and one of the ways he contributed to the community was through powwowing or folk healing, whether it was a sick farmer, injured livestock, or crops that needed extra care. So how did he wind up brutally murdered? And why do people tell stories about demons and ghosts lurking in the woods at night outside his home? Why do they call that part of York County Hex Hollow? Well, that's where young John Blymeyer comes in. Blymeyer was about 23 in 1928, the year Nelson Raymeyer was murdered. John was a sad sort of chap. He had trouble finding work, trouble not only making a living, but making a life. He suffered from intellectual disabilities. His IQ was below what would have been considered normal at the time. Interestingly enough, though, John Blymeyer was also a powwow doctor, like Nelson Raymeyer. In fact, John was a third-generation powwow doctor. But even those skills for charms and talismans couldn't protect him because his life played out like an episode of Lemony Snicket's. Eventually, John became convinced his troubles were the result of a curse. Someone had bewitched him, and if he could find the person who put the curse on him, all of his troubles would turn around. 
And John Blymeyer certainly had a hard life. He married young, had two children, and lost both of them when they were still babies. He spent some time in the state hospital in Harrisburg for mental illness, and he left when he got sick of being there. Yeah, he just up and walked out and made his way back to York County. Today, Blymeyer would probably be diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic with delusions. But in the 1920s, mental illness meant you were stuck in a room to rot or given electroshock treatments every day. I can't say I blame him for walking out. Blymeyer needed to uncover the identity of the witch doctor who cursed him. So he traveled beyond the Susquehanna River to Lancaster County to enlist the aid of a famous witch. Yeah, we had famous witches in Lancaster County almost 100 years ago. Maria, who knew? This was a woman known as the Marietta River Witch, and she put a dollar bill in John Blymeyer's hand. She told him once the dollar bill left his palm, the face of his tormentor would be left behind. Now, that's a pretty cool trick. I can't say I've ever heard of anything like that before. I mean, I'm sure we've all heard of tea leaves and crystal balls, palm reading, but the thing with the dollar bill is pretty unique. Now, would you like to guess whose face graced John Blymeyer's palm when the dollar fell away? That's right. It was local hermit, powwow doctor, and divorcee Nelson Raymeyer. The Marietta River Witch, which makes me think of a woman who looks like an otter. Well, she told John Blymeyer the only way to break the curse was to steal Raymeyer's spellbook and burn it, and take a lock of his hair and bury it six feet underground. So Blymeyer got two of his friends to give him a hand. They broke into Raymeyer's house, and they couldn't find his spellbook, which really wasn't a spellbook. It was a book of home remedies and folk magic. So they beat him and strangled him, and then they set him on fire to hide the evidence. But it didn't work out so well because John Blymeyer and his accomplices were arrested and convicted of murder. This story was a scandal across the country at the time. It was a period in American history where modern medicine was becoming a true profession, and guys like Raymeyer and Blymeyer, local witch doctors, were ridiculed as quacks and charlatans. There were articles about the murder and the trial in the New York Times, not just the Philadelphia Papers. There were stories about witchcraft being practiced in farm country. And then came the rumors and the hauntings. Raymeyer lived in a small wooden house when his body didn't burn and the wooden house didn't burn. Well, that was proof for some people that witchcraft had to be involved. And the house might not have burned on that November night in 1928, but some say it's been burning ever since. There's been reports for almost a century of smoke coming from the home in Hex Hollow when no one's inside. Some of the other legends are a little more ridiculous, but considering I've avoided the fuck out of that place, I'm really no one to judge. There are rumors your cell phone dies when you get too close to the Raymeyer house in Hex Hollow. It's been said you can see faces of the dead floating amongst the trees at night. Some even say you can get lost in Hex Hollow because the roads become a maze and they move. You never leave the hollow the same way you entered it. Yeah, I think that last one's a crock of shit too. <laughs> I'm trying to be all spooky. The house was converted into a museum about 10 years ago, and its curator is someone we spoke about earlier in the episode, Nelson Raymeyer's great-grandson, Ricky Eba. 
So if you visit, be sure to tell me what it's like because there is no fucking way I'm going in that house. I am perfectly content to look at spooky pictures online. Before I move on to the next spooky tale, I would like to take a Pottern family break and give a little plug to some of my favorite podcasts. Do you piss green after you've eaten vitamins? We certainly do. And therefore, you should listen to the Countdown Movie and TV Reviews podcast. Even if you don't piss green, this is something I think you guys will like if you like TV and you like movies. We countdown lists associated with both, as well as offer the occasional review and a number of segments that are random in nature for your enjoyment. Check out the Countdown Movie and TV Reviews on iTunes, Podomatic, or your favourite podcast app. Hey, Twisted Philly listeners, I'm Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast. My podcast is for the ultimate true crime enthusiast. It's a glimpse into the life and crimes of some of the most demented minds. If that seems like it's right up your alley, then check me out. TrueCrimeFanClub.com Hello, this is for... Can't say hello at the same time. Fuck's sake. (laughs) Hello! Hello! This is an advertisement for Master Debaters. Oh, can we say Master Debaters together as well? Yeah. Hello! Hello. I'm Michael. I'm Sean. I'm Tuffer. And we are the Master Debaters. Oh, <laughs> we, 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 we are the Master Debaters. That's what we do. We're all saying it. Yeah. Hello. Hello! I'm Michael. I'm Sean. I'm Tuffer. And, and we, we are, are the Damn it, Sean! Debaters. I thought we were just doing... Hello. Hello! I'm Michael. I'm Sean. I'm Toffer. We are... The, the Master, Master Debaters. Debaters! You can find us on Twitter at underscore Master Debaters, SoundCloud, Podbean, and iTunes. Just do yourself a favour and jump aboard this podcast train. Choo-choo, motherfucker! <laughs> in our last story, we were so far south in Pennsylvania, we were almost in Maryland. For the next Twisted Tale, we are going much farther north, almost into New York State. This story is from Easton, Pennsylvania, more specifically a little stretch of land in Easton in the Delaware River called Getter's Island, as in get her out of here because this shit is haunted. This place is less than 10 minutes from the happy, smiling Crayola factory. Let's build a tourist attraction for children right near a haunted island. In the 1700s, the island was named Abel's Island after one of the men who owned it. But in 1833, it was renamed after Charles Getter, who was executed there. That's a great way to name an island. That's a great way to name anything, for that matter, after someone who's been executed. So just who was this man Getter? His name was Charles Getter, and in 1833, he was hanged for murdering his wife. The Adams Sentinel, which was a Gettysburg newspaper at the time of his murder, called his marriage to Rebecca Lawall a union commenced in crime, consummated in tears, and determined in blood. That is some seriously melodramatic reporting, and I fucking love it. Perusing old newspapers has become one of my favorite pastimes. I am a colossal nerd, and I simply love reading old media coverage from the 17 and 1800s, The writing styles were novel quality material. Every journalist was trying to be Dickens or Shelley or Byron, and that just fascinates me. Nevertheless, this was not a happy marriage. According to reports, Charles Getter got Rebecca with child some months before their wedding, and she went to the law to complain. 
In the 1800s, you didn't have a child out of wedlock, and if you impregnated someone, you could be forced to marry your conquest and provide for her and the child, or you went to jail. Getter didn't fancy the idea of jail, so he opted for what he considered to be the lesser of two evils, marriage to a woman he didn't love. He in fact loved another, a local seamstress named Mary Hummer, and yes, I did laugh with my Beavis and Butthead sense of humor when I realized her last name was Hummer. Maybe that's why Charles Getter was so into her. The day after his wedding, Getter went to the local justice of the peace to ask for a divorce, and they said, get the fuck out of here. The only reason you're not in jail is because you married this woman. Well, Getter told anyone who would listen that he would not live with Rebecca. He was bold and callous, telling all the locals he would be rid of her within three weeks' time. Within half that time, the strangled body of Rebecca Lawall was found lying on her back in a field near the public road in Easton. The Adams Sentinel described Rebecca's condition as being in an advanced stage of pregnancy. Yet this meant nothing to Getter. He wanted Mary Hummer and he would do anything to be with her, including ridding himself of his pregnant wife. And although the authorities had no physical evidence he committed the murder, the murderous statements he made around town prior to Rebecca's death became his undoing. Charles Getter was sentenced to death by hanging. Now, normally public executions were held in Easton Square, but Rebecca LaWall's story enraged people, not only from Easton, but surrounding communities, and the square simply wasn't big enough to hold the close to 20,000 people who attended the execution. So it was moved to Abel's Island, which wasn't large enough to hold everyone, but the island provided a terrific view for people who had to watch from the mainland. Getter made his way up to the scaffold. The noose was slipped around his neck. The platform dropped, and as his body fell towards the ground, the rope broke. Yes, it did. Getter stood up. He shook himself off. And because they were on this tiny island in the Delaware River, there was no other rope. So Charles Getter had to stand around for about 20 minutes while someone rode to the mainland, got a better rope, rode back to the island, fashioned another noose, and then the execution was completed. The hanging of Charles Getter was the last public execution in Easton. It was an epic fail. So the founding fathers decided maybe going forward, we should do this nefarious shit behind closed doors. Soon after his death, People reported seeing Charles Getter walk the island, his spirit haunting the place of his death. Perhaps he's trying to get back to his beloved Mary Hummer. The spirit of Rebecca Lawall haunts Easton along the road where she was found. Her figure is seen wearing a black dress, very likely the dress in which she was buried, mourning her lost child and a love that was to never have been. I can't say I've ever seen either of these spirits, although I've certainly been in Easton plenty of times during the day and in the evening over the course of visiting the Crayola factory when my daughter was little, taking a ride out to look at Getter's Island, visiting clients for a company I worked for years ago. But plenty of people claim to have seen these sad souls even more than a century and a half later. There's one last ghost story I want to tell. It's another one of my own experiences, and it involves my daughter. Now, my daughter didn't come home from the hospital right away when she was born. 
There were some complications for both of us, and she stayed even longer than I did. Within a few weeks after coming home, she had an interesting habit of what we called petting the air above her. Now, she only did it with her right arm. Her left side was temporarily paralyzed, and she's fine now. But when she was awake, so often she would raise her right arm, and it looked like she was petting the air. One night, a friend was over, and he noticed her behavior. He told me to grab my camera and take pictures, not of her, but around her. Get the space above her. So I did. And when I got the photographs back from CVS, there were orbs in them. Every one of them had a tiny little ball of light above my daughter. Some were even near her hand. And there were other events that happened when she was a baby that made us all believe someone was here with her. I'm not going to share some of them because they're very private, but I know someone was here with her for a few months, and I'm pretty sure I know who it was. We also think one of my dogs sees ghosts. Mr. Frodo. Multiple times a week, he stares at the same spot in my stairwell in the living room, And he looks totally freaked out. And when he does this, my daughter and I both say, oh, Mr. Photo sees the ghosties. And nothing will distract him when he sees the ghosties. We don't see anything and there aren't any orbs. We've taken pictures. He probably sees a reflection from the television in a picture on the stairwell wall. But like, but we like to say it's the ghosties. And that, my friends, is the end of this tale. Something a little lighter than the last few episodes. Although there were still murders. Shit, okay, maybe it wasn't light. For some reason, I feel like old-timey murders aren't as bad as present day, although that may be a really fucked-up way of rationalizing this episode. I'd like to thank singer-songwriter Emmy Serra for the music you heard in this episode. You can find out more about Emmy on her website, emmysera.com, and download her music on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.